Thanks for joining us. I'm Amy Walter of the Cook Political Report, sitting in for Diane Rehm. She'll be back on Monday. Iraqi officials accuse ISIS of using hostages as human shields in Mosul. French officials tear down a migrant camp in Calais known as the Jungle. And Syrian rebels launch an attack to break the siege in Aleppo. Here to discuss this week's top international stories on the Friday News Roundup, Mark Landler of The New York Times, Laura Jakes of Foreign Policy, and Paul Danahar of the BBC. Thank you, everyone, for... Good morning, Amy. Thanks for inviting us. Sure. Hi. We're really happy to have you here. We're going to take your questions and comments throughout the hour. You can call us at 800-433-8850. You can send us your email at drshow@wamu.com. You can join us on Facebook or Twitter. And um, I think... of. We've had a lot going on in the world today. I can't believe we're going to be able to get this all into one hour, but uh, we should. It's been a very busy world. We're going to try to squeeze it all in, starting, of course, with the update on the battle to liberate uh, Mosul. And maybe Paul Danahar, if you can give us some update on what the military situation there looks like. Well, you've got uh, the Iraqi security forces, Kurdish Peshmerga, Sunni tribesmen, Shia militia, advised by U.S. uh, soldiers, about 30,000 in total, uh, surrounding Mosul. Uh, The latest is that the uh, ISIS, or Islamic State State Group, have apparently abducted around 10,000 civilians from around the the city to use as human shields. We've seen um, the, the, the Iraqi forces moving slowly, slowly towards the center of Mosul, um, taking certain villages. There's been suicide attacks carried out. There have been sort of tunnels discovered where these guys are popping up and firing. We've not got to the really bloody stage um, of the battle yet by, by far, but it's, you know, it's, it's tested the Iraqi forces. have not been as organized as perhaps people would have hoped they would have been. So I think, um, you know, how they're going to deal with 10,000 human shields and not have serious kind of civilian casualties is a great concern. How are, those, how are they deploying these human shields? How will this work? Well, we haven't seen them. What, what we've, it's, what a, we it's an awful is, image. They've basically uh. kind of forced villages in the surrounding areas to, to come into the city, uh, city centre. Uh, those that have refused have been some mass uh, executions that have taken place, ma- mass murders. Um, so we don't know how they're going to do it. But what we do know from Islamic State is they don't abide, abide by any of the rules right. of war. So um, we could see also we could see people strapped with explosives. We could see people literally being pushed out in front of fighters. Um, it's a really, really... I mean, there is probably no other uh, type of warfare that's more complicated and difficult if you want to avoid civilian casualties and the opposition group literally using them as barricades. And... Laura, what do we know, Laura Jakes, what do we know about the folks who have been trying to leave, the civilians who've been trying to escape? Where do they go? And what sort of pressures is this putting on other parts of the world, especially in Syria? Well, where do they go? Many uh, hundreds, if not thousands, are trying to go north into the Kurdish areas of Iraq. Some have been trying to get to Syria. There was uh, an escape passage to the west from Mosul into Syria, which is kind of amazing and shocking to think that Syria would be safer than Iraq right now. Um, the the area between Mosul and the Syrian border, um, I've been there many times. It is a vast desert um, that 
much of which right now is controlled by the Islamic State. So it is very perilous to try to make that crossing. And it's one thing to keep in mind here is that this is not going to be a migrant or a refugee uh, flow that ends anytime soon, just like the battle itself is not going to end anytime soon. Mosul is the second largest city in Iraq. Uh, before this offensive, there were probably 1.8 million people still living in the center city or in the immediate environ. And we saw, for example, earlier this spring, the Battle of Fallujah took over a month to clear and to hold when Iraqi forces and the Shia militias went in to battle ISIS. The same thing is going to happen here if it doesn't take even more time. And what about the ISIS fighters themselves who have been fighting on the outskirts? They're escaping or maybe some that are leaving Mosul right now. Are they going back into Syria? Where, where, what do we know about them? And are they re- trying to reconstitute themselves as they as they leave the besieged? Cities? So just like Paul said, some are coming back into Mosul. They're going into the villages. They're bringing the villagers back into Mosul to use as these human shields. Some are going into Raqqa. Um, we have heard the, the Secretary of Defense and other top military officials say that the United States needs to now focus on Raqqa, which is a city in Syria, which is where the Islamic State is trying to base its caliphate. And so they're fleeing there. And one of the reasons, I believe, the military is saying that they want to hold a new offensive against Raqqa soon is to be able to squeeze that, to squeeze the Islamic State out of Raqqa while the offensive in Mosul is going on and really make the Islamic State run and and hide. One other thing that I thought was interesting this week was that we saw some Islamic State fighters go to the city of Kirkuk, which is a little southeast of the city of Mosul in Iraq. Kirkuk is a city that has always been very split between Sunni Arabs and Kurds. Uh, Even before the Islamic State came to prominence uh, in 2011-2012, Kirkuk was known as a city in Iraq that was seen as a powder keg because of this ethnic um, clash. And so it may be that the Islamic State is trying to go to Kirkuk to rally support among other Sunni Arabs and against the the, the, the Kurdish and the Peshmerga. Well, I'm glad you you raised the issue of Raqqa. And Mark Landler, I want to talk to you about that. What, what the situation would look like should we go into Raqqa? Is it even possible to be able to do both of these things at once, physically possible? If you can give us um, an update on that. Yeah. The U.S. Uh, and its allies would like to go into Raqqa within a few weeks. And I think they, their strategy or their thinking is that they want to, you know, exploit the momentum they're generating in Mosul. They have the Islamic State on the back foot in Mosul, they believe, and they and they want to seize that moment to go into Raqqa. Raqqa is much more complicated if that's possible because Mosul is plenty complicated. But in Raqqa, you have a situation where some of the most battle-hardened uh, troops that could be part of that offensive are uh, Syrian Kurds. And these Syrian Kurds are deeply um, suspected by the Turks. The Turks view them as, as effectively synonymous with the PKK a Kurdish uh, militant group inside Turkey. And so the Turks are obdurately opposed to the Syrian Kurds taking part in the Raqqa offensive. Um, But the American uh, Lieutenant General Stephen Townsend just this week talking about what would be required for a successful campaign against Raqqa said that the Kurds have to be a part of that. 
while acknowledging that he hasn't yet figured out how he's going to get the Turks on board. So there's this very complicated uh, ethnic and political dynamic around how you structure the troops that are going to attack Raqqa. Uh, and I think that that's something that the administration's been puzzling through in the United States. Uh, president Obama spoke with um, the prime minister, the president of Turkey, uh, Erdogan, just in the past week. Uh, and while he praised Erdogan for Turkey's role in helping in this effort, uh, Erdogan made it very clear to him he doesn't want to see the Kurds be a part of this and spoke publicly about that admonition afterwards. So I think the U.S. faces an extremely complicated diplomatic effort in addition to the military effort before they even begin the offensive against Raqqa. I think the other thing also is it's going to depend a lot on how ISIS fights. If it tries to fight as a conventional army, it's going to lose eventually because so many troops are going to be set against it. But it may not. It may try and, you know, filter away and send its guys out into the community and maybe some across the border act like refugees, carry out uh, suicide attacks. If you look through history at things like the Tamil Tigers, for example, in, in Sri Lanka, they were really, really effective until they started trying to govern and run things and be an army, and then they were wiped out. And so I think one of the interesting things will be what does the Islamic State do? Mm-hmm. Does it decide to, to reformat itself and, and, and change the way that it fights? Will it become a guerrilla fighting unit or will it try and fight as an Islamic army and, and, you know, and probably lose in that case? I, I would just like to remind people as well that uh, the Islamic State was and was formed really a decade ago. It was al-Qaeda in Iraq and it's the main Sunni insurgency that fought Uh, the government of Iraq and American troops and other coalition troops in Iraq from 2003 on. And so it morphed. This is important to remember because it morphed, because at some point very late in the Iraq war before the American forces came home at the end of 2011, the Islamic State was almost dormant. It wasn't quite dormant. I was in Baghdad at the time, and there were still bombings every day, and people were being killed. But it was not the huge um, explosions and huge attacks of hundreds of people killed every day. It was several dozen. And I'm not trying to make light and say that, uh, you know, anybody who dies is is okay. I I obviously don't think that is the case. But it did go underground for a while. And in 2012, I was still there, and we saw the resurgence of what is now the Islamic State. So that is to say that this group could remorph itself. It could go dormant. It could go underground. And I would not be at all surprised if that's exactly what it does. There's one one other point I'd make about... Raqqa in particular, um, if ISIS is driven out of that stronghold, uh, in addition to dispersing into the countryside, there is some fear that some of the European recruits to ISIS could find their way back to Europe, to France, to Belgium, and other countries. Um, And so uh, this is something that the president of France talked about in the past week, that um, there's some 4,000 Europeans who are fighting uh, with ISIS in Iraq and Syria, and some number of those will find their way back. And so, you know, there's this idea that President Obama, among others, have talked a lot about that as ISIS's territory shrinks, uh, some of the way it lashes out is uh, in terrorist attacks in Europe and perhaps even here. So that's a prospect that we have to consider as well. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to have more of the Friday News Roundup. DC is daily. DC is daily. DC is daily. It's news, culture, and 
Curiosities. From the district. Tacoma Park. Alexandria. Friendship Heights. Hyattsville. Falls Church. Northeast Washington, D.C. In your inbox every weekday afternoon. DCS Daily. Sign up at dcs.com slash newsletter. dcs.com slash newsletter. Welcome back. I'm Amy Walter with the Cook Political Report, sitting in for Diane Rehm. I'm joined this hour for the International Roundup by Mark Landler. He's the White House correspondent at The New York Times. He's also the author of Alter Egos, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and the Twilight Struggle Over American Power. I have Laura Jakes here, the managing editor for news at Foreign Policy Magazine, and Paul Danahar, Washington bureau chief at the BBC and author of The New Middle East, the world after the Arab Spring. We were talking before the break about the situation in Mosul and in Raqqa. And Paul Danahar, I just want to go with you to, to sort of, I know it can't be completely wrapped up, but certainly the, the, the rhetoric within the political campaign here for president and uh, th- throughout uh, the last year has been focused on destroying ISIS. Yeah, we're going to we're going to get rid of ISIS. And here's one way to do it. We're going to bomb them. We're going to go into Mosul. We're going to go and we're going to eradicate them. And yet certainly what I'm hearing today is but, that uh, they're not going away. They're going to reconstitute and we may see more terrorist attacks around the world. If you were ISIS, you wouldn't stand there in your uniform and say, come get me. I mean, the reality is that this is a group, Lara was saying, you know, it's managed to change and morph itself and adapt to its environment. It used to be an offshoot of al-Qaeda. It changed again. There's no reason why it can't change again. And the, the, the situation is that the, 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 the battle arenas that, we're, that people are fighting in are incredibly complicated. You know, it, it just in Aleppo, you know, we have... Uh, Iraqi Shia militia on the side of Assad, and the same Iraqi Shia militia are on the U.S. side fighting ISIS in Iraq next door. So you don't have simple lines of, of battle. You don't have sides that stay on your side. They decide whose side they're going to be on depending on which country, almost which village, which province. And so it's incredibly complicated. So simple black and white, we're going to destroy this, we're going to get rid of that. It, it just won't happen because these are not conventional armies. These are not conventional states. These are morphing and changing and adapting to their environment. And because we're big conventional armies, we're slow at doing that in the way that they're not. I want to stay in the region for a minute and talk about the situation in Aleppo. Uh, Lara Jiggs, a new round of fighting in Aleppo. Um, can you give us the the update Sure. From there and what, what we see happening. Sure. Well, as of this morning, it sounded like there were um, more of the, the Sunni rebels were trying to shore up um, eastern Aleppo, an area that's seen so much fighting. Aleppo is, is divided uh, between regime loyalists and rebels, and the rebels are trying to shore up their base there. Uh, their populations there. What I had heard this morning or what I've seen this morning is that it doesn't seem to be going very well for the rebels. Um, And when we talk about conventional armies, conventional governments, uh, it's important to think about the extent that some of the Assad regime's allies are are playing in Syria and in places like Aleppo. there were there was a bombing not too far away um, in northern Syria this week of um, a couple of children's schools, 
Um, we've seen dozens of people have died. The numbers have varied anywhere from 11 to 22 children in these schools. The UNICEF chief said that it was a crime against humanity or a war crime. Um, and the Russians came right out. Uh, Vladimir Putin is, a, is an ally of, of President Assad in Syria. And the Russians came out and said, actually, this all is propaganda. And if you want to see some attacks, there are some other attacks elsewhere that we are not responsible for. And this tape has been spliced and your evidence is, is ridiculous. Uh, just yesterday in the U.N. Security Council, the Russian ambassador uh, denied that there was any um, bombing of chemical weapons use in 2014 and 2015 by the regime in um, rebel-held areas across Syria. So I, you know, we have no idea how Aleppo is going to go. It's been a place that we've seen various attempts at ceasefires over the last year or so. They've all broken. I, I would be hard-pressed to believe that this is going to turn out much differently. I'm going to take a caller here, Jim from Cleveland, Ohio. Jim, you're on the air. Yes, uh, thank you for my call. I just had a couple of comments. Um, I was a infantry officer, Army infantry officer for 10 years. I served time in Iraq and Afghanistan. Also, I was a DOD contractor after I got out in 2008 to 2010, uh, studying groups like at the time with ISI. Uh, we, you guys are discussing issues in regards to conventional operations and, you know, going against conventional forces. Uh, trying to take back Mosul, you know, us supporting the Iraqis. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the, my question or the comment, and I'll take it offline, is what are we doing? Let's say the Iraqis are successful because we're essentially playing whack-a-mole. What are we doing with our foreign policy strategy to ensure that the glue, that the government of Iraq is strong and not overtly oppressive against its own citizens or people that they perceive were aligned with ISIS or ISIL? you know, post-taking back Mosul. And, you know, Syria is in our issue, obviously, with Assad. But within Iraq, what do you recommend, what does the panel recommend the uh, next administration, whether it's, you know, a Clinton or a Trump camp, you know, administration, taking it as the way forward instead of, you know, that would actually act as, you know, a benevolent leader in the region? Thank you. Uh, can I uh, can yeah, I sure. answer that really sure, quickly because I have some it. some strong thoughts on this. Um, I I would suspect that the best way forward is to make sure that the police forces and the authorities in the regions across Iraq are dominated by whatever religious or ethnic group that is in that community. It's very hard for Shia police forces to go up to a Sunni city like Mosul and have a lot of um, buy-in with the residents, right? I mean, especially when you see Shia militias that are backed by Iran come into some of the Sunni cities and you hear of atrocities that the Shia militias are um, committing as well in the name of government troops. Um, a couple of years ago, we saw Shia, uh, Iraqi army, but predominantly Shia troops go up to Mosul and uh, imprison people, Mosawis, and torture them while they were in prisons. Uh, Human, right, Human Rights Watch has done many stories on this and documented people who were crammed into tiny cells, who were whipped, who were starved. These were mostly Sunnis who were being tortured by Shia authorities, even if they were government authorities. So I think this, the first and the strongest thing to do would be to make sure that government forces are in certain areas are dominated by people who reflect those communities. Who gets to make that decision, though? Well, the, of course, the government of Iraq does. Right. But and what kind of influence can the U.S. or any other uh, outside organization have on that? The United States pays a lot, you know, 
millions, if not billions of dollars to Iraq in helping with foreign military sales, with helping Iraq buy tanks, with training its troops, with providing munitions and artillery. So to think that there's not a whole lot of influence that the United States has here is is not right. Mark? Um, uh, what I'd add, I guess, is that the... I mean, the U.S. has had bitter experience with this. The Maliki government, which was the predecessor government to this one, um, basically did engage in that kind of um, score settling and revenge uh, and disregarded repeated efforts by the U.S. to uh, ask them to bridge sectarian divides. The Abadi government, the Haider Abadi government, is viewed as much more constructive in this area than Maliki was, and that explains why the relationship between the U.S. and Iraq has actually improved, uh, you know, in the last six months or so. Um, but you know, what it goes to is that the U.S. is still, in the, at the end of the day, kind of... Um, uh, vulnerable to whoever their partner is. And if the partner's unreliable, as Karzai was in Afghanistan, for example, you just can't get a lot done. And there's no sort of assurance that that the Abadi government is the model we're going to see going forward. There could be a return of Maliki, for example. So this is one of the kind of built-in um, limitations you have when you build your counterterrorism strategy around working with partners and, and, and sharing the burden with partners. You have to have the right partner in order to have it work. And this is, I think, one of the insights that President Obama has kind of learned the hard way over the last few years as he's kind of developed this strategy of burden sharing and developing these kind of partnerships. You can't, I mean, the, the, the problem is you can't walk away again. Um, you can't just say, like, okay, this guy's in charge now and we'll just step back because you can't trust them not to be influenced by internal political uh, circumstances. That means that guys that one day look actually quite reasonable are no longer looking any reasonable anymore. And you know, the U.S. has had a bit of a history. You know, it saw the, the guys in the Sunni awakening being basically you know, murdered on the streets, having helped the U.S. kind of get to the stage where they could withdraw, they were left alone. The same thing happened in Afghanistan. The problem is that a lot of these, um, a lot of American partners look at history in a way that sometimes we in the West don't and say, are we going to put all of our eggs in the American basket? Because when we do do that, and when we've done that in the past, we lose our eggs. And so you have to kind of overcome this suspicion that, you know, there's a partnership now. Will it be there five or ten years' time? Because otherwise they hedge their bets. They kind of keep relations with some of the dodgy characters just in case they need them locally if they lose American support. So I think the important thing for the next president is to decide if you actually want to have influence in the Middle East, in Iraq, in Syria... You have to show them that you're going to be there for more than an electoral cycle. You've got to give a sense of we're not going to walk away from this no matter how difficult it comes. I don't mean put troops on the ground, but have serious people involved in it. You don't hand it over to your VP and walk away. You've got to have the president seeming, seeming to be engaged in these problems. How do you do that, though, at a time when we're going to have a transition of power between one president and the next? Is this something that President Obama can do no, I don't in the next... He- no, I don't, few think, months I don't think he can really do it. I mean, you may have some successes. You know, you may end up with uh, Mosul being, uh, may, it may fall in inverted commas to, to the Iraqi forces, and that would be great. Um, but I don't think the American, this American president has much capacity now. I think the big problem for the next American president is Europe, which is supposed to be a kind of big helpful ally, is so consumed with its own problems that increasingly America has been trying to pull away from being the world's policeman under mm-hmm. Obama, and I think circumstances are going to push it much more forward, whether it likes it or not, as having to take on a lot of these issues. 
You're listening to The Diane Rehm Show. If you'd like to join us, call 1-800-433-8850. Send an email to drshow at wamu.org. You can find us on Facebook or send us a tweet. Speaking of Europe, I'm going to move us over there to the events that happened in Calais this week with the French clearing a migrant camp, which was known at the jungle. Mark Lander, what prompted this action and what has happened to these migrants? Um, well, this is a, a camp that has a fairly long history. It goes back to the late 90s. And um, it, uh, in recent uh, years with the, um, you know, the influx of um, refugees from, from Syria, from Afghanistan and elsewhere, its population has swelled up to six or 8,000 people. And it's become a source of real tension between France and Britain. Uh, Calais, of course, is, is right on the um, English Channel. And the, uh, many of these migrants had hoped to uh, smuggle them themselves uh, or otherwise get over to Britain uh, and the and the and the British were understandably very concerned about this um, Francois Hollande the French president had promised uh, to resolve this issue uh, at some point uh, before the end of 2016 he didn't want it to become a big election year dispute in France uh, there was a lot of skepticism about whether the French would ever actually take action but uh, they they finally did they sent in the authorities and uh, and dismantle the camp um, and and developed a complicated uh, and politically difficult plan to disperse uh, the inhabitants of the camp to uh, cities and towns and villages around France. Uh, when these people get to these intake centers, their asylum applications will be reviewed again. Uh, presumably most will be accepted, but some won't and be sent back to wherever they came from. Um, there's a, there's a, a subset of, of people here who are unaccompanied minors, children, uh, who, who, um, whose status is, of course, very uncertain, and it's a sort of a tragedy what will happen to them, uh, so this has uh, been a—it's a sort of a symbol, honestly, of of of, of the great uh, crisis that the migrant influxes has presented for Europe. Uh, and so the French attacking this camp on the one hand removes this ugly symbol, but on the other hand, it it reinforces the problem that all of the European countries are having integrating these large new refugee populations into their own population. Well, and that that brings us to a post here on the Diane Rehm Facebook page. The person writes in, the burning of the refugee camp in Calais should be thoroughly investigated. First reports in the field are not always accurate or precise, but so far it seems cut and dried that the Calais camp was burned down by refugees themselves, entirely possible. On the other hand, one must ask whether or not the camps were burned by terrorists, be they ISIS or Al-Qaeda, or right-wing French extremist Paul Danahar. Any? I don't think we've got ISIS um, burning down camps in uh, on Kaliath. And what we have here is, uh, uh, as Mark was saying, it's a problem that just won't go away because we haven't got to the roots of the problem, which is all these people coming uh, into Europe because their their own homes are often in complete turmoil. Sometimes it is economic migrants. Uh, often it's people fleeing wars. The problem that we have in Europe is that Europe. This this issue has basically broken up Europe, U European unity because you've got all these new countries that don't want to play up uh, or get involved in, 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 in dealing with the migrant issue. You have the older countries like the UK where immigration has been a massive issue and has now led to even leaving the EU. Um, Europe is basically putting a sticking plaster uh, on all these kind of things relating to, to migrants. This is a step forward. As Mark was saying, we had a similar situation back in 1999. That camp was eventually shut down. Then this one came back again. No doubt you know, 
five, six years from now, maybe before then, we'll have another uh, camp sitting on Calais because the people are desperate and we're seeing them die by the hundreds trying to get across um, you know, waterways. Shutting down a camp is not going to deal with the problem. And Largex, where are these migrants being sent and do we have any indication of what life is like for them as they're being put into other parts of France? Well, so uh, the Calais uh, migrants or, or refugees are being processed. They're being sent to other parts around of, of France uh, trying to get uh, asylum or otherwise means of residency. And many are trying to still get into Britain. And that's where they always wanted to go in the first place. That's why they were in this port city, Calais, which is right across the, the channel from from the U.K., and what's life like for them? I mean, anybody who goes to Europe these days sees people on the streets who are, you know, we think we have a homeless problem in the United States, and we absolutely do. But these are young children who come with their parents, who pack up their um, their belongings into grocery bags every morning. They sleep on cardboard cutouts. I, I just got back from a year in Rome, and people were sleeping at the foot of the Vatican every morning. Um, right by the the river. And there was a very, uh, you know, just a heart-rendering video, I believe on the BBC yesterday, of uh, two Syrian children who are in Turkey, for example, 13 years old. They get up every morning and they go to work. The little boy lost his job. And the, the presenter said, well, what will you do? How will you support your family now that you've lost your job? And the camera zoomed in on this little boy who just started crying. It wasn't just that he had lost his home and lost everything. It was that he couldn't provide for his family. And I, I really challenge anybody to look at that video and not feel some compassion for people who are migrants and coming out of these war-torn areas into a Western population who just does not want to welcome them. We're going to take a quick break, but coming up, we'll take your calls and your questions for our panel. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Amy Walter with the Cook Political Report, sitting in for Diane Reamed. I'm joined today on the International Roundup by Mark Landler. He's the White House correspondent at The New York Times. He's also also author of Alter Egos, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and the Twilight Struggle Over American Power. Lara Jakes, the managing editor for News at Foreign Policy Magazine. And Paul Danahar, the Washington bureau chief at the BBC. And he's also the author of The New Middle East, The World After the Arab Spring. As long as we were moving toward Europe, let's talk a little bit about what's happening in Eastern Europe and with NATO. They have, uh, they're planning right now the biggest military buildup along the Russian border since the Cold War. Large X, can you tell us a little bit about what is happening and why? Sure. Well, we, the, the United Kingdom is sending jets to Romania. The United States is sending troops, tanks. Uh, artillery to Poland. 
other NATO countries are following suit by adding other military assistance. It's interesting to remember just a couple of years ago, the United States was trying to retract some of its tanks and um, brigades from these exact areas and also in Germany. But okay, a couple of years later, and here we are back again, seen this movie before. Um, In the meantime, Russia is um, stationing some nuclear-capable missiles in Kaliningrad. Uh, They have started steaming some warships into the Baltic Sea. Um, So it does look like there's this huge buildup. But I I would really caution against any kind of World War III uh, fears right now. What this really seems to be is a lot of muscle flexing by both sides. And um, one thing that I've heard a lot of over the year is that the Russians are really bristling at this idea that they are no longer a superpower. And this seems like President Putin's mandate to reposition Russia and have it universally recognized as a superpower, a global superpower. Um, And so this may be him saying, hey, you cannot ignore us. You cannot think that we are some small, piddly country. We are a force to be reckoned with. And in fact, yesterday, um, he himself told people in Sochi that it's, quote, stupid and unrealistic to think that Russia might attack anyone in Europe. So again, this might be a lot of muscle flexing and, hey, Wake up, world! We are still a superpower. So, Mark, oh, or, or Paul, no, 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 you want to say this is just this is just saber rattling? We're not in a Cold War 2.0. No, we're not. We're not. But I do think that the, the Europeans have a certain amount of responsibility for the way that Russia has reacted to this, mm-hmm. because it did basically ignore Russia and ignore their concerns and begin to push closer and closer to, to areas that Russia felt were very much their sphere of influence, and. Um, you know, it just, and, and no one in Europe really listened. And so the noises were being made, and the Russians were like, we're not happy about this, we're not happy about it. And there was this attitude in Europe of like, well, who cares what you think? I mean, you guys are, you're past history, you know, and we're moving forward and we're building this big. And so, you know, while you can argue that Russia has been really aggressive and, uh, is, and is particularly kind of playing up this kind of strongman role and trying to reassert itself, I think it's partly in, uh, as, as, a, as a consequence of the Europeans not taking Russia seriously until Putin got back into power. And now he's saying, you know what, guys, we're back and we're not going to get pushed around again like we were pushed around. But, but at the same time, Mark, um, Spain, uh, there, there was a flotilla of, of Russian warships that wanted to refuel in Spain. And then they withdrew that. And mm-hmm. Spain says, well, the reason that they didn't want to come refuel here is because we started asking questions about whether these ships were going to be used in the siege of Aleppo. So that it goes beyond just stuff happening in Europe as well, it's Russian involvement in yeah. Syria. I mean, Russia is perceived rightly as a bad actor in, yeah. in Syria, uh, and they are a key ingredient to Assad's bombardment of Aleppo. I think one of the interesting points I wanted to make about this is that for months, the Obama administration had predicted that Putin would come to regret his incursion into Ukraine and regret his intervention into Syria, that these two things would, would rebound badly on him, backfire on him, if you will. Um, there's no evidence so far that that's happened. Um, uh, the intervention in Syria has not caused him political problems at home. If anything, it's enhanced his popularity. Uh, and I'd say the same uh, for the Crimea annexation in Ukraine. And if anything, the Russians are, uh, one could argue, punching above their weight at the moment as a player on the global stage. Uh, and so um, 
in some ways, the lesson for other would-be strongmen around the world is a troubling one. Um, you, you can actually uh, enhance your popularity at home and build your profile abroad with this kind of behavior. So I think as we look uh, later in the show, perhaps to the Philippines or to China, um, there's evidence uh, uh, that, that we could see more of this kind of muscle flexing in, in other sensitive areas. I'd I'd like to add another perspective on that, Mm -hmm. that, you know, all politics is local, as they say, and it's important to remember that Europe does not look at all issues in a uniform way of light, right? And so what we may be seeing a little bit of in Spain and in Italy and other southern European countries is, hey, you know, Russia has been a big trading partner for us for a long time, and we're not we're getting as hurt by the sanctions that are on Russia because of Ukraine and elsewhere as they are. And at a time when the economy in Europe is tanking, at a time when Europe is trying, especially southern Europe around the Mediterranean, are trying to deal with this huge influx of millions of migrants, they're seeing Russia do more in Syria on the ground than maybe the West is because Russia actually has troops there. You know, these this flotilla that came through was trying to do something on Aleppo. And so it has really driven a wedge among European lawmakers, um, maybe on a country-by-country basis, but definitely there is this discussion going on in Southern Europe right now. And is this also ripping apart NATO in terms of the ability to work together on this issue? You know, I don't know if it's ripping no, it apart. Or at, at least increasing tensions well, th- in the I same think way. The, the Brits in particular, I think, are going to play a much bigger role in NATO because they want to reassure Europe that they still have value outside of the European Union. So I think you will see um, the British in particular trying to kind of punch even more above their weight to show that they're, you know, they're still big players in the world. So I think NATO is still relevant. Um, I think the issue that we've got is basically there's no or else at the moment in Western politics. So, you know, you can do pretty much what you want around the world in most uh, parts of the world, and the Europeans and the and Americans and the UN will make lots of noise about it, but there's no or else. If you don't stop this, this is going to happen, because it, nothing does happen, and we, it goes all the way back to the red line um, in Syria. And the Russians have basically... Were, you know, all sorts of threats were made against the Russians if they went into Crimea. This was going to happen, and... You know, they've managed to survive. And as Mark was saying, you're basically being told at the moment, give it a go. If you're a leader around the world and you want to push the envelope a bit, have a crack at it because there's no one really at the moment that wants to stop you. And here, by the way, is a place where the U.S. election, you know, weighs in very directly because you have one candidate on the Republican side who's professing closer relations with Vladimir Putin and another candidate who has a historically antagonistic relationship with Putin and would probably at least rhetorically push back much harder against him. Now, whether that would translate to concrete action, as Paul says, is maybe somewhat questionable. But I do think that here the U.S. election presents a clear choice, and if there's ever going to be an or else in this equation, it may depend on Hillary Clinton rather than Donald Trump winning uh, in a couple of weeks. I'm going to move us over to the Philippines for a moment. There's been a lot of action there with the president of the Philippines in the news again this week. He was in Beijing. He was in Japan talking about the relationship with the U.S., and Laura, do you want to you want to give us his his take, and and then we're going to get into some of the other things well, that he did. Apparently, President Duterte found God on his uh, flight home from mm-hmm. Japan yesterday. 
this is a man who has had some, shall we say, spicy language for the likes of President Obama and Pope Francis. And he's flying home from Japan um, after saying that maybe, you know, that all foreign troops will leave the Philippines within two years. Uh, it's important to remember that the United States is the Philippines' most uh, valuable military ally. Uh, there was a new treaty signed just two years ago um, to give U.S. troops more access to Filipino bases. Anyway, so Duterte has been saying troops must get out. We don't need your help with this this kind of dangerous counterterror mission, counter-terror mission in southern Philippines. Anyways, he's flying home. And he hears the voice of God come to him and say, stop using spicy language. And so he tells the reporters aboard his plane, "Okay, I'm no longer going to use profanity. And the reporter said, well, really, even even when you're talking about the United States and and uh, Europe? And he said, well, actually, there's a time for everything. But so (laughs) we've got that going for us. But uh, it's hard really to know where Duterte is coming from these days. Uh, He says things like, we no longer want U.S. military assistance, and then he backs off a couple of days later. Or even immediately after he makes these comments, his aides kind of rush in and say, no, 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 he didn't really mean that. So it's really hard to know where this relationship is going to go moving forward. Well, that's a a very good segue because, Mark Landler, you wrote about that this week and that Hillary Clinton has a relationship with this part of the world when when she was Secretary of State. And while his pushback may be a repudiation to Barack Obama, it's also one to Hillary Clinton as well. That's right. I mean, she was, if if you recall, the person who sort of laid the groundwork for what became President Obama's Asian pivot. Uh, and, you know, she was one of the uh, people in the administration who really sh- reached out to shore up relationships across Southeast Asia with um, the Vietnamese, with the Malaysians, with the Filipinos. So this is um, problematic for her. Um, you know, she actually stood on the deck of an American ship in Manila, in Manila Bay to reaffirm the importance of the treaty between the U.S. and the Philippines. Uh, So she's got something invested in this personally. And while Laura's exactly right to say that we don't know whether Duterte's erratic personality really means a seminal change in the U.S.-Philippine relationship, even the possibility of that is problematic for an administration that counts this pivot to Asia as one of the few things in foreign policy, arguably, that went quite well for them. So I think that if you saw a president, Hillary Clinton, probably one of the first things she would try to do is to go out to that part of the world and shore up those relationships, uh, because regardless of how all-consuming the Middle East is going to be, she really does view Asia, as Obama did, as sort of the future for the United States. So that's where the broader implication of this very personal story uh, comes in. I'm Amy Walter. You're listening to The Diane Rehm Show. And Mark, though, how much does the tensions between the Philippines and the U.S. signal maybe broader problems, especially the fact that TPP was supposed to be part of that pivot to Asia with countries like Malaysia and Vietnam and others? Is this going to signal bigger, broader problems from those sorts of countries? Well, I mean, you know, certainly Hillary Clinton reversed herself on TPP in the course of this campaign. And if TPP were to die politically uh, because of anti-trade fervor in this country, it would be a major plank of the Asian pivot that fell away. And and also it would be the loss of something that for the Philippines, for Vietnam, for Malaysia – 
is an important counterbalance to the influence of China. I mean, we're basically engaged in a, a geopolitical contest with the Chinese for influence in that part of the world. And TPP was an important lever for the United States uh, to maintain American influence and to bind these countries to the United States. So the loss of that would be another major setback. And I think in Duterte's leaning toward Beijing, we're beginning to see how difficult that contest is going to be and how the Chinese won't hesitate to throw their weight around uh, and try to bind these countries closer to themselves through the strength of foreign investment, money, and that sort of thing. We're also seeing what appears to be an attempt by the present Chinese president to possibly get a third term. Um, which shows you that um, you've got a power struggle going on in China. And if, if we end up with kind of a, a long-term Chinese president that doesn't have to keep rotating, um, then you really are going to see a continuation in uh, quite a strong foreign policy from China. Um, and we're going to see that come over not only in trade, but I mean, I think there were reports today that for the first time the Philippines have been allowed to fish in areas that China uh, was refusing to allow them to fish in, some con- contested islands. And so, you know, Duterte can go back and say, look, guys, my, uh, my, my approach to China has already paid off. So the Chinese, because they don't have to worry about what the public back home thinks about foreign policy, they can just do what they want, can be really quite nimble when it, term- when it comes to kind of exploiting um, uh, possible relationships, whereas America and all the Western powers have to kind of balance uh, the demands back home and business demands and political demands, the Chinese can be really fast and can switch straight away and say, right, let's do this and let's do that. And in a place like Asia where they were promised this, this, this pivot and they found themselves not quite getting the attention mm-hmm. and love they were hoping for, the Chinese can give it to you big time and big bucks come along with it. And so, you know, if you've got people like Duterte that's basically, you know, one of these kind of short-term politicians who wants to make a name for himself, that's quite an attractive proposition. I want to move us from Duterte, who is very popular at home, to a leader who's very unpopular, and that's President Maduro of Venezuela. We now have hundreds of thousands of protesters in the streets. Laura, do you want to give us, uh, tell us a little bit about what's happening there? Tell our our, uh, our listeners how we got to this place. Sure. So let's take a step back yeah. and look at where Venezuela is today. It's got a 30 million um, person population. Uh, about 30,000 people are expected to be killed this year alone in murders, kidnapping, and other crimes. Uh, it used to be a very rich economy. It's now very poor. Uh, oil prices have tanked. Uh, the fact that it has one of the largest oil reserves in the world, if not the largest, means is almost nothing now. Um, Hugo Chavez built this government. It was a revolution to bring a democracy. It is now one of the most oppressive governments in the world. Um, and so you have uh, President Nicolas Maduro uh, facing um, a, a push by opposition to bring a referendum to boot him from office. And last week, a lower court um, sided with President Maduro and said, we are not going to pursue this. And so that has sparked outrage nationwide and brought out thousands of people in protest. Um, the, because the court's who are basically controlled Correct. by him and the security and, and the services, the services, as well. services doing this. So is there any way that we're going to see change in the power structure in Venezuela? I, th- I think the, the reality is that while the army and the police are being paid, no. I mean, we keep, as journalists, we keep looking at Venezuela and waiting for the moment where it's going to fall over. Every now and then we try and send people along because we think this is the moment, and it doesn't. And it doesn't because the infrastructure uh, of suppression, the infrastructure of government is still in place when it comes to he's paying the bills 
for the army and the police. Now, if he can't afford to do that anymore, then things may change. But while he still has his fingertips around all of those groups, uh, it will be very difficult because what the problem, when you get to this sort of situation, people get and spend up spend all their days trying to find food right. and trying to find work. And so they, they don't have the energy almost a power to revolt. It's when you end up with the police and the army saying, you know what, we're sick of this guy too. That's when things tend to bubble up. And I think with Venezuela, it's just, look, look, look at Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe's had the same situation, an economy collapsing, a di di dictatorial leader in many people's eyes. And the guy's hung in there because he still managed to hang on to the army and the police. And I think that's kind of what we have in Venezuela. Thank you all for joining us. And thank you, listeners, for being with us for this hour. I'm Amy Walter with the Cook Political Report, sitting in for Diane Rehm. Thanks again for listening. The Diane Rehm Show is produced by Sandra Baker, Denise Couture, Rebecca Kaufman, Lisa Dunn, Alexandra Boti, Danielle Knight, Erica R. Hendry, and Allison Brody. The engineer is Alex Drewenskis. Cliff Gallagher answers the phones. Visit drshow.org for audio archives, transcripts, and podcasts. Our email address is drshow at wamu.org. And we're on Facebook and Twitter. This program comes to you from American University in Washington. This is NPR.